This last week, the Cultural Research Center survey done by the Barna Group dropped like a bomb on the American evangelical landscape. It's called the American Worldview Inventory. It's an annual study tracking the worldview of thousands of confessing evangelicals from across the country. Between 2020 and 2023, over the last three years, the percentage of American evangelicals who believe that Jesus lived a sinless life dropped from 58% to 44%. In other words, more than half of American evangelicals think that Christ's obedience to the commands of God is unimportant. This despite the clear and repeated teaching of the New Testament that Jesus did live a sinless life. And so let me remind you what the scripture teaches. Let me, let's do a survey of four people right now. Not thousands like has been done, but four people. And ask them the same question that these thousands were asked. Was Jesus perfectly obedient to the law of God or not? Listen to Peter's testimony. Peter, who knew Jesus well, was by his side every moment for three and a half years, writes in 1 Peter 2.22, Christ committed no sin. Or John's testimony, another member of the inner circle of the Lord Jesus, writes in 1 John 3, verse 5, in him there is no sin. Or let's ask the testimony of the demons. Let's get them to weigh in on the survey. In Luke 4, what do they say of Christ's sinlessness? They say, let us alone, Jesus. What have we to do with you? Did you come to destroy us? We know who you are. You are the Holy One of God, the sinless one. And then there's Jesus' own testimony, which, by the way, 56% of confessing evangelicals say Jesus is lying. When he says in John 8, 29, I always have done the things that please my Father. Of course, the baseline reason this matters is, is if Jesus ever sinned once, as 56% today of American evangelicals believe, If Jesus ever sinned once in word, thought, or deed, you don't have a Savior. All of the Old Testament sacrificial system demanded a a spotless, perfect sacrifice to take the place of the sinners. The scriptures fill out the picture this way. That Jesus did most certainly live a sinless life. He most certainly obeyed every one of the commandments of God. And then he imputes his earned righteousness to the believing sinner. At the same time, the believing sinner lays his guilt on Jesus, thus accomplishing the great exchange. I give Jesus my sin. He gives me his perfection, his earned righteousness. Our salvation hangs on this. Did Jesus obey the commands of God for his entire life? But the survey also determines, as was found out this week, that obedience to God's command on the part of believers are so inconsequential to a majority of your evangelical peers that they think obedience in the Christian life simply does not matter, not only on the part of Jesus, but on the part of confessing believers. I'm not so naive as to think some of those people aren't in our midst tonight. Tonight, we will see something very different, because in fact, what we will see is God gives spiritual disciplines to his people with this end in sight, that they would obey his commands from beginning to end. 
We're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to teach us and instruct us and give us concentration. And so let's ask for that even now. Our Father, our minds are so undisciplined that we can be distracted by the slightest breeze. Our thoughts can wander far away from your word. But now in this moment, enable us to gird up all our mental powers to hear you speaking in Scripture. Enable us to ignore all the distractions the evil one will surely use and bring against us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you have your Bible open to Joshua 1, especially verses 7 through 9. I promise the day will come when we will get out of Joshua chapter 1. It may not be soon, but we will. But this chapter is so rich, I want us to mine the riches of it. If you were to seek out Joshua, standing now as the new leader of Israel, having taken over from Moses, standing on the the verge of the promised land, getting ready for years, decades of constant, sustained warfare against the Canaanite inhabitants of the promised land. And he's thinking about the daily pressure of, of judicial and administrative problems to solve, as well as military leadership. What counsel would you give him? I dare say most of us would not think of what the Sovereign Lord commands of him in verses 7 through 9. Look carefully with me at the text. The Sovereign Lord commands Joshua to meditate upon the Scripture multiple times daily. Let me repeat that so you understand exactly what the Lord is telling Joshua. He commands him to meditate upon the Scripture multiple times daily, not just to have a quiet time and maybe read a verse as he runs out the door, but to meditate upon the scripture multiple times daily. And what we'll see in this text is meditation is the spiritual discipline for busy people. Sadly, meditation in the last 60 years has been identified with non-Christian thought, whether it be New Age thought or Eastern mysticism or relaxation therapy. But I must remind you of its chronological priority. The Lord commanded this daily activity, that of meditation, to Joshua 3,400 years before its counterfeits were popularized. David, another busy man, a man who is a military leader, a man who is the king of a growing kingdom, writing in Psalm 1, verse 2, 400 years after Joshua's day, wrote of the godly man, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Sounds just like Joshua. Now let me define for you what we mean by meditation, because many of you right now are saying, Carl, what are you talking about? What is meditation? Well, first of all, let me clear something up. Meditation is not the emptying of the mind. If you've gone to all sorts of different exercise or aromatherapy sessions or whatever it is you go to, that much of the the mindfulness training you have comes from either a Buddhist or a Hindu model. And it teaches you to empty your mind. Biblical meditation is the exact opposite. Biblical meditation is filling your mind with scripture. Ungodly meditation is about visualization, creating your own reality. But biblical meditation is about carefully seeking to understand the reality of the Bible. Ungodly forms of meditation teach mental passivity. But biblical meditation is mental activity. It involves sustained, concentrated, directed thought. 
It is hearing, reading, studying, memorizing scripture for the purposes of prayer application and in our text, obedience. Now what I want you to see from our text is meditation is specifically for the purpose of obedience. Joshua, even though God is calling him and commanding him to be a a man of obedient action, the Lord says this in no way is opposed to disciplined contemplation. Now look carefully at our text, and I want you to notice the content of meditation. Look at the exact words of the Lord to Joshua. In Joshua 1.8, the Lord says to him, You shall meditate in it, that is the book of the law, day and night. This command, I want you to, you can draw a red circle around it in your Bible, point arrows at it, because this is a, is a huge turning point in the history of biblical revelation and redemptive history. This command marks a turning point. Joshua was to be guided by, look carefully at verse 8, the written word of God. No man before Joshua had ever received orders to regulate his life by the words of a book. No man. And from its first appearance as a book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it occupies the position of unqualified supremacy and authority. It is above Joshua. The Lord doesn't say something like this. Joshua, try and remember real hard what Moses said and then follow that. No, he tells him to meditate on a book. This is a first I want you to think for a moment about the growth and development of the canon of Holy Scripture. Joshua knew Moses intimately. He'd known him intimately for 40 years or more, the writer of all of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Joshua knew Moses' strengths and weaknesses. Nevertheless, immediately after the death of Moses, which is where we are historically, Joshua accepted the Pentateuch as more than the writings of Moses He accepted it as the word of God. Two or three hundred years weren't required for the book to become sacred. As far as Joshua was concerned, the Pentateuch now, probably including the book of Job, was the canon of scripture. The biblical view of the growth and acceptance of the canon of scripture is this simple. When it was given, God's people immediately understood its authority. The practice of meditation upon the written word of God was the practice of the great men and women of Scripture from Joshua to this day. Now let me show you three examples of meditation in Scripture. If you're thinking this this command is only to Joshua, no, we can show you dozens of people in Scripture, but three will do. Look, for example, at Psalm 119. And look at David's practice, writing 400 years after the life of Joshua. And I want you to notice what David says is the cornerstone, the the anchor of his piety. It is this spiritual discipline of meditation on the written word of God. In Psalm 119, just follow through. I, I realize it's the longest psalm in the Bible, but look at Psalm 119, verse 15 and 16. David writes, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. In other words, he'll he'll memorize the word. And then look at verse 23. Princes sit and speak against me, but your servant, speaking of himself, meditates on your statutes. I'm starting to get the idea that David thinks this discipline of meditation is important, but he's just getting started. Look at verse 48. 
David writes, my hands also, I'll lift up to your, my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Then again in verse 78, David writes, let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood, but I will meditate on your precepts. And then again in verse 97 and following, David writes, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. I don't think I need to convince you much more that David thinks this spiritual discipline of meditation as yet undefined is the centerpiece, the anchor of his piety. Look at another example, a second example, a godly woman, because perhaps you're thinking, Carl, you don't understand. I could give Ren Kinney a run for her money. I realize she's got seven kids, but her kids are really well-behaved. And, and mine, Carl, they're, you know, they're trying to set the curtains on fire right now. And I just don't have time for this. Maybe, some, maybe guys should do this, but I'm a busy mom. We have Mary the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, who meditated upon Scripture when she pins the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verses 47 through 45. It's the fruit of her memorization and deep meditation on the Scriptures. And then we have over and over again, in fact, the one thing we can say for sure about Mary and her piety is this. We're told in Luke 2, Mary kept all these things, namely the preaching of the shepherds and the angelic revelation, and she pondered them in her heart. That's another way of saying she meditated. And then again in Luke chapter 2, after Jesus' bar mitzvah at the age of 12, in his astounding in the, the rabbis in the temple, we read of Mary. He went down with them, that is Joseph and Mary, and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. God took flesh in the womb of a mother who meditated on the word deeply and pondered it. Guess what Mary taught her son to do? Meditate on the written word. Jesus, the greater Joshua, did meditate and showed as much by his readiness and perfect use of scripture. You remember as a 30-year-old, when he goes to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4, he doesn't take out with him to the wilderness scrolls. He's meditated so richly on the scripture that it's imprinted upon his mind. And so three times in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan tempts him, Jesus quotes scripture from memory from, of all things, Deuteronomy, and repels the evil one. In fact, he memorizes and quotes the exact same text from the Pentateuch that Joshua was commanded to to meditate upon in our text. So the type, Joshua, the Lord tells him, would conquer his enemy, the Canaanites, by meditating on the word. But the fulfillment, Jesus, the greater Joshua, did conquer the evil one by meditating and memorizing the word. Now I want you to think about the historical continuity from Joshua to you. Meditation was not to empty his mind, but to fill it with the Holy Scriptures. And so the same word that Joshua meditated upon and memorized was the same word that David meditated upon and proclaimed his love for, was the same word that Jesus memorized and meditated upon and used to rout the evil one, is the same word that you and I are to meditate upon. 
You're not commanded to meditate and ponder upon your dreams or suspicions or feelings or alleged New Age revelations. The written word of God is the speech of God and meditation is listening to his voice. Now let me remind you what we say confessionally. We as a confessional church, we have have gone in print for 390 years what our view of scripture is. Listen to what our larger catechism says. Larger Catechism 157 asks, how's the word of God to be read? It says, with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. Our confessional stance on the word of God, what we're to do with it is we're to meditate upon it. It's interesting that at the end of his life, when we come to the end of the book of Joshua, sometime late next year, we will find that Joshua is still stuck on the written word. He begins the book of Joshua this way, and in Joshua 23, verse 6, Joshua turns to the congregation, the whole nation of Israel, and he says, Be courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or the left. We should be so faithful. What's the timing for meditation? I want to help you very practically. Because right now you're thinking, Carl does not understand my schedule. I am busy from the second I get up till the second I go to bed. Well, so was Joshua. He had a nation of two million people to lead. He had battles to fight. He had Canaanites to, to, to deal with. He had to, to feed all of these people and deal with all their judicial matters. He may have been busier than you. But I want you to notice when the Lord tells him to meditate. Look at verse 8 in our text. The Lord says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. And so at least twice a day. So if you're saying, Carl, should I have a daily quiet time? Let me make that a plural. Quiet times. This pattern is confirmed by David in Psalm 1 when he writes of the godly man. He says in Psalm 1, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The psalmist writes again in Psalm 119, I I rise before the dawn of the morning and I hope in your word. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. And what we find is the pattern is established among the godly man that not only does he Does he meditate morning and evening? Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 119. What is he doing with his thoughts in between? Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all through the day. And what we find is, and this is, by the way, one of the great battles in sanctification with those who give their minds over to lust, hatred, fear, worry, discontentment. So often I'll ask folks who are struggling, I'll say, tell me what you think about all day. Well, I fixate on this woman. I fixate on this possession I want. I fixate on this conversation that's made me so angry. What God is calling Joshua to do is instead of fixating on those things, is to fixate upon the word of God. It's interesting that the word used for meditation means to chew, to chew on the word. Or the literal Hebrew could be to mutter it. And so, Joshua, if you walk past him and you think, 
what? Who's he talking to? He's muttering, repeating the word of God. So let me stop and ask you. Have you ever spent a day delighting in pondering the word, reveling in it? We think about what we delight in, money, possessions, pornographic fantasies. A pair of young lovers thinks about each other all day. When we delight in God's word, we think about it and bring it to mind all through the day. Now, I want you to notice what the stated goal of meditation is. It has a distinct goal in God's mind. Look back to our text at Joshua 1.8. The goal, unlike New Age or Eastern mysticism, which is an altered state of consciousness. I, I don't even know what that means. Um, but the goal of biblical meditation is stated for us in verse 8. The, Joshua is commanded to meditate so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Meditation is not commanded to Joshua just for general enjoyment, but with a specific design that you may be careful to do. Joshua is not just to meditate to be a contemplative soul, but to constantly be regulated by the law of God through a serious inculcating of God's holy commands into the heart, mind, and soul. The daily periodic meditation upon the law of God is to lead to a more prompt, more full, more joyful obedience. Meditation, if you look at verse 8, is not an end in itself, is to lead to doing, to obeying the commands of God. James picks up on this in the New Testament in James chapter 1 when he says that you are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then he talks about how foolish the man is who's a, who's a hearer of the word and not a doer. And so what this teaches us, stare at Joshua 1.8. The Lord is teaching Joshua a profound principle. What is the essence of true godliness? It is this. The Christian life is a life of principled, conscientious obedience to God's revealed commands in the Bible. And meditation is a necessary step towards that. And I want you to notice that the Lord commands Joshua to universal obedience. Look at verse 7, where the Lord says, Be careful to do according to all the law, in verse 8, so that you may be careful to do according to all. And what he's teaching Joshua here is his law is not a smorgasbord. Joshua is told, Joshua, don't pick and choose what you want to obey. Then you're only a self-pleaser and not a God-pleaser. How often do you do the mental gymnastics and say, that looks like an easy command to obey. I'm going to do that. But that command looks hard. That will mean the undoing of the patterns of a lifetime, even generations. That will be like chopping off my right hand or plucking out my right eye. Is that you? Do you understand anything of a passion for universal conscientious obedience? God's regenerate people are marked by a, a sincere desire to obey all of God's commands. It's the exactness of obedience that constitutes the glory of obedience. Okay, Carl. I see it for Joshua, but we live in the freedom of the new covenant. Listen to what the Lord of the new covenant commanded his people just before his ascension. He tells them that you are to teach these new disciples you make. In Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, you are to teach them all things I have commanded you. 
What is Jesus' last word to his disciples? Be busy about teaching and commanding universal conscientious obedience. Remember the three mandates of the Great Commission. They are evangelize the lost, meaning make disciples in every nation. Second, engage in Trinitarian sacramentology. That's what you just saw with Pastor Anderson and the Kinney family, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And third, teaching these disciples to obey all the commands of God. John Murray, the greatest theologian of the 20th century, wrote, Too often the person with a concern for the ordinances of God and a careful regard for his commandments is judged to be a legalist. While the person who's sloppy and careless about the commands of God supposedly models the liberty of the new covenant. Murray goes on, but in Matthew 5, Jesus makes the criteria of our standing in the kingdom of God nothing less than careful observance of his command. What do we see here in our text in verse 7 and 8? The Lord promises Joshua reward and blessing for obedience. Now get the sequence. Here's, here's the sequence so you can follow the, our engineering flowchart here. Meditate so you will obey so you'll know the blessing of God. That's the sequence that the Lord lays out. Meditate upon the word so you're filling your mind with that instead of lust or worry or fear or discontentment. Meditate so you'll obey so you'll know the blessing of God. Do you see it in verse 7 and 8? The Lord promises Joshua both occasions that he will know prosperity and success if he meditates upon the word and obeys it. The Lord, by the way, repeatedly tells Joshua, Obey and I will bless you. The path of obedience is always the path of blessing. Don't we sing this? When we sing trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Joshua found that out experientially. He adhered closely to the law of God. And the Lord blessed all his efforts as he will bless the new covenant believer. Now I want you to think with me very carefully. Because this is the part where many of you right now are stiffening your backs. Whoa, obedience? You're saying that God is is not going to bless me if I'm disobedient? What I want you to see is how often we are told this principle, God blesses obedience. Jesus, or Joshua knew this principle. Think how often he had read it. I want you to do a quick survey with me. Keep one finger here and look at Exodus chapter 15. The principle that the Lord is teaching Joshua is blessing for obedience. Exodus 15, verse 26, the Lord says, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. I am the Lord who heals you. What's the Lord telling Israel? He'll bless them concretely with none of the diseases he put upon the Egyptians if they'll simply obey. Or Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is the ultimate where the Lord gives this long litany of promises of blessing for obedience, curses for disobedience. This principle continues throughout the whole Old Covenant period. The psalmist writes in Psalm 1 that the the blessed man He prospers in whatever he does. God blesses his obedience. The psalmist writes again in Psalm 19, verse 11, speaking of the law of God and his commandments, he says, in keeping them, there is great reward. 
Again, in Isaiah chapter 1, we see this principle, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Isaiah writes, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Isaiah even promises in Isaiah 58, a special blessing for obeying the fourth commandment, for keeping the whole Lord's day. And you're thinking, okay, Carl, I hear it, but that's all old covenant stuff. None of this applies in the new covenant. You would be dead wrong. In Ephesians chapter 6, what does the Lord promise to covenant children? In Ephesians chapter 6, if they will keep the fifth commandment and obey their parents, he promises to bless their obedience with a long life. God always acts this way. He always blesses obedience. So when he tells Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 7 and 8, meditate, obey, and I will bless you. That sequence, that formula. He's not saying anything he doesn't say anywhere else. When God regenerates a man, we're told in Ezekiel 36, he he places his Holy Spirit in that man to make him a careful law keeper and obedient. To the person who says, because they're, they're folks who, who they want to be ultra simplistic, don't want to kick in their mind, don't want to consider all the scripture. And so I invariably have folks when I'm using a text or a text like this will say, Carl, I don't know about all this obedience stuff and blessing stuff. I just want to love Jesus. Great. You're the person I want to talk to. Do you remember what Jesus said repeatedly the night before he went to the cross? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Recognize that the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus, did perfectly obey all the law of God. If he ever transgressed once, you could not be saved. Now, I want you to think about the method of meditation because my goal tonight is not just for you to say, that was an interesting sermon. If that's all that happens, I have failed utterly. My goal tonight is for you to implement, to act, and to say, just as Joshua did, just as David did, just as Mary did, just as Jesus did, I want to meditate on the word of God and know his blessing. How do I do that? Well, first of all, meditation is so much easier for you than for Joshua or David. In their case, it would have involved scrolls, going to the the tabernacle or the temple or the synagogue. But you have a hundred ways you can access scripture. And so let me give you a a few-step plan for meditation to implement. First of all, get alone. Jonathan Edwards, in his treatise concerning religious affection, said, True religion causes a man to be much alone in solitary places for meditation. The true Christian, no matter how much he loves Christian fellowship, delights in private converse with God more. The first step will involve getting alone. We had a dear friend in Anderson who, when they built a new house, they built an actual prayer closet in their home, a tiny room, and it was equipped with a chair and a stand for a Bible, and that was it. And the kids in the house knew when the door was shut that mom or dad were in the prayer closet, and they were busy in meditation and prayer. The next step in terms of meditation is simply reading the text. Now, let me tell you, we have, uh, Sandy and I are a distinctly divided household here. 
because I'm a purist and I, I need that physical Bible. I need something I can flop open and smell the leather on, my favorite method. But Sandy's a much higher form of learner than me. She's an auditory learner, and so she uses an audio Bible, and she's, she's much more skilled than I am. But then there's a third way, whether it's a, um, a big leather Bible like mine or an audit, audio Bible. Many of you, I know, do your Bible reading, reading of the text on a computer program. I do that as well with Bible Gateway. It's in my phone and on my laptop. And then as you are reading, reading the text does you no good unless you do the next step. Ascertain the meaning of the text. Ask the Holy Spirit, the giver of Scripture, to guide you into all truth. Use solid hermeneutics, grammatical, historical method, paying attention to all the context, the historical, geographical, and political. Now comes the good part. Once you've read, now comes the command that God gave to Joshua. Meditation. Without meditation, all you will ever have is a shallow grasp. In meditation, write down observations you plan to chew on through the day. How that text applies to your sanctification, your vocation, your family situation. And then do what meditation is at its core. Pick at the text all day long, like a, like a hummingbird probing a flower for its nectar, like a, like a dog with a bone, like a cow chewing its cud. You are to mutter it literally throughout the day. That's what meditation is, rolling it over in your mind and your tongue, asking questions of the text as you've memorized it. And then, indeed, commit some of the text to memory. And finally, use the text as a springboard for prayer. Praying the text, either as a prayer of adoration or confession or thanksgiving or supplication and imprecation. And finally, finally, always ask the text that you're meditating upon. Is there a command to obey? Because why was meditation given in the first place? The Lord tells Joshua, so that you might be about obedience. Meditation is not just for an intellectual stimulation. It is to lead to obedience, which is to lead to blessing. How do you apply? Let me try to presage some of your objections. Because I'll have folks in this room tonight who will say, Carl, that sounds really good, but I... I just can't. Let me answer some of your objections. To those who say, I I can't give myself to meditating on God's word daily because I'm just really busy. You don't understand how busy I am. Well, my friend, you certainly don't have a more important position than Joshua did, nor are your tasks more numerous than his. If any man's duties might have excused him from meditation on the scriptures, it would have been Joshua. But we cannot expect the God of truth to be with us if we neglect the truth of God. You're not too busy to binge watch hours of Fox News or Netflix or TikTok or Facebook or video games. Oh, I just named your entire day, didn't I? Be honest. Be honest right now. To the person who says, I'm too busy. Usually you just want to be constantly entertained but don't care for the labor and spiritual discipline. Remember, you are commanded to seek the Lord and meditate on his word for the purpose of maturity and obedience. You are never commanded to be entertained and culturally informed.
Another another objection. Carl, I just can't seem to get focused. You don't know. My mind's just a buzz. Turn off the TV, the phone, the computer, and ask the Holy Spirit for concentration help. Have you done that? Perhaps you have not because you ask not. Or if you're that person who says, Carl, I'm really shallow. I'm really shallow. I'm just kind of a USA Today kind of Christian. I really want to just think superficially about the Bible. I just kind of want a devotional thought for the days I run out the door. You can be sort of a high spots sort of guy when it comes to taking it in with the news of the day. But the Bible will not allow you to do that with it. Because repeatedly, you and I are commanded to deeply immerse ourselves in the whole counsel of God. All of these objections I named are illegitimate reasoning and show a lack of a heart for God. And we need to be reminded of Jesus' words. Where your treasure is, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Another application. Would you recognize that perhaps your lack of spiritual power and even your worldliness is due to a lack of meditation on Scripture? Since meditation is a necessary step for the purpose of applying the word to self, then obeying it. If there is no passion for obedience, then there was never any meditation that purposed and planned for obedience. And finally, let me get real personal with you. When are you going to begin to implement the discipline of biblical meditation? What day? What time? What scripture? Most of the parents in this room would say, well, I need all the parental wisdom I can get. Great. When are you going to begin to meditate on the book of Proverbs? What is your plan? Without a plan to meditate, you will continue to drift down the stream of superficiality. My prayer tonight is that God may make us a people of the book. Those with a deep love for the written word, a a church that is constantly chewing on the word for the purpose of obedience to it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we repent of our shallowness, our superficiality, our lawlessness. We ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to bring this word to our mind. Enable us to meditate on your word, leading us to obedience. Keep us from laziness and sloppiness. How we praise you that our Lord Jesus meditated deeply upon your word, was diligent and perfect in our place. We pray.